Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I have, for some time past, viewed the political concerns of the United States with an anxious and painful eye. They appear to me to be moving by hasty strides to some awful crisis, but in what they will result, that being who sees, foresees, and directs all things alone can tell. The vessel is afloat, or very nearly so, and considering myself as a passenger only, I shall trust to the mariners whose duty it is to watch, to steer it into a safe port. A month and a half away from the end of the year, General George Washington wrote this in a letter to Secretary of War James McHenry. As we've been discussing the past few episodes, the year 1799 had indeed been full of moments of anxiety and potential crisis. Both at home and abroad, situations were shifting. And in hindsight, though this letter also leads one to wonder whether those present at the time felt an inkling of it as well, it seems that events were moving to a breaking point where, for better or worse, they would never be the same again. Welcome, dear listener, to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to James Early for providing the intro quote for this episode. I've gotten to know James through a Facebook group that he organized called the American History Fanatics and have since gotten to learn from him from not one but two podcasts he's been involved with. He teamed up with Scott Rank of History Unplugged to do the Presidential Fight Club podcast, which pits the 44 individuals who have thus far served as commander-in-chief against one another in a hypothetical winner-take-all face-off. Then, James and Scott joined together again for a series on the key battles of the Civil War. Both series are available everywhere fine podcasts can be found, and I'll have links on the source notes page for this episode. I have heard rumblings that a series on the American Revolution may be in the works, so keep your eyes and podcatchers peeled. Before we deal with Washington, let's back up a month or so and rejoin President John Adams on the road to Trenton, New Jersey. After spending half the year in Quincy, Adams was finally rejoining the federal government in order to determine once and for all whether the peace mission that he had agreed to in February would in fact be sent to France. He knew that the mission was opposed by most of his cabinet, and even the man chosen to lead the commission, Supreme Court Chief Justice Oliver Ellsworth, was getting cold feet. Ellsworth wrote to Adams on September 18th asking that, quote, If the present convulsion in France and the symptoms of a greater change at hand should induce you, as many seem to expect, to postpone for a short time the mission to that country, I wish for the earliest notice of it. He did have a day job, after all, with the court, and couldn't be expected to wait around forever for a peace mission that may or may not happen. While Adams did mention in letters to both Secretary of State Pickering and his reply to Ellsworth that a short delay may be in order, it seems from multiple letters that he sent in the two weeks prior to his departure that Adams had his mind fixed on the envoys departing in either late October or early November. Being on hand in Trenton would help to ensure that his plans would be carried out. Beyond just the standard problems with travel in the U.S. in the late 18th century, Adams' trip had been a rough one. 
Soon after his departure, he had started to feel ill and thus arrived at a stopover at his daughter Nabby's house in a weakened state. His constitution would not be helped when John discovered he was not the only family member at Nabby's. His daughter-in-law Sally and her daughters were staying there as well, for her husband, Adams' son Charles, had disappeared and left the family without any means of support. It was up to Sally to reveal to the president that his son was an alcoholic, had cheated on her, and had gone bankrupt. As John would write to Abigail after his arrival in Trenton, quote, Sally opened her mind to me for the first time. I pitied her. I grieved. I mourned, but could do no more. A madman possessed of the devil can alone express or represent. I renounce him, i.e. Charles. King David's Absalom had some ambition and some enterprise. Mine is a mere rake, buck, blood, and beast. Thus, it was with a much heavier heart that Adams proceeded on from Eastchester. The journey went on, quote, day after day with cold, rainy weather which lashed his carriage as it struggled languidly to the south. But finally, sometime on Thursday, October 10th, Adams arrived in Trenton and found lodging, quote, in a house owned by two maiden sisters named Barnes. By the time he arrived, Adams felt worse than ever, but the Barnes sisters tended to their guest, providing him with, quote, a down comforter and nursing him with, quote, rhubarb and calomel. He would need to gather his strength, for his cabinet members were not the only ones that Adams found waiting for him in Trenton. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. General Alexander Hamilton had been in Newark, where the troops of the new army were encamped. But by the time Adams arrived, he would find Hamilton waiting for him in Trenton. Now, there are two opposing stories about the timing and purpose behind Hamilton's arrival in Trenton. From what I can tell, it seems like one recounting comes from Adams, while the other comes from Hamilton. Adams and various Adams historians accuse Hamilton of a breach of protocol when, Upon hearing that Adams was on the move, instead of waiting for a summons from the president, Hamilton, on his own volition, decided to travel from Newark to Trenton to meet with Adams. Hamilton and Hamilton biographer Ron Chernow, on the other hand, point out that, as Hamilton's correspondence verifies, Hamilton was already in Trenton by October 8th and was in town dealing with War Department business. Adams biographers interpret Hamilton's being in Trenton as a desperate last-ditch effort to stop the peace mission from going forward. Chernow, meanwhile, asserts that, quote, as commanding general of an army created to ward off a French invasion, he, i.e. Hamilton, naturally wanted to consult with the president. And as the de facto leader of the president's own party and a man with a considerable ego, he thought he was entitled to the president's ear. Whatever Hamilton's reasons for being in Trenton, when he arranged a meeting with Adams at the Barnes boarding house, the two men who had been fighting for control of the administration since Washington left office in March 1797 would finally square off against one another. And it would soon become apparent that, for his considerable talents and skills, Hamilton was no match for the power that Adams wielded as president. Adams would later recall the confrontation thusly, quote, I heard him with perfect good humor, though never in my life did I hear a man talk more like a fool. 
Hamilton argued that the current upheaval in France would lead to a restoration of the Bourbon monarchy before the end of the year, and that the U.S. should join with the British in seeking such a restoration, or, at the very least, have nothing more to do with the failing current French government. Adams concluded that, quote, I should as soon expect that the sun, moon, and stars will fall from their orbs as events of that kind take place in any such period, and later noted his amazement at, quote, the total ignorance he, Hamilton, had betrayed of everything in Europe, in France, England, and elsewhere. Indeed, though there was no way for them to know at the time, Adams would prove to be correct that a restoration of the Bourbon monarchy was not in the cards in 1799. His meeting with Hamilton further solidified in President Adams' mind the importance of getting the peace mission off to France sooner rather than later. Adams would also meet with Chief Justice Ellsworth in a private dinner while at Trenton, with Ellsworth also arguing for a postponement of the mission. On October 15th, Adams would meet with all of his cabinet members except for Attorney General Charles Lee in a lengthy session that would last until 11 that evening. Though not physically present, Adams had Lee's counsel on the matter as he found a letter from the Attorney General awaiting him upon his arrival in Trenton. Lee had written that, quote, I cannot perceive any sufficient reasons for the suspension. Such a measure would exceedingly disappoint the general expectations of America and exciting the jealousy and suspicion of many concerning your sincerity in making the nomination would afford your enemies an opportunity of indulging their evil dispositions. If the envoys proceed as I think they ought, it does not appear to me that any inconvenience will be felt by the United States, even if they should find a monarch on the throne of France, which I by no means expect will very soon happen. Pickering, Walcott, and McHenry would continue to express their opposition to the peace mission proceeding forward, while Secretary of the Navy Benjamin Stoddard would speak in support of it. Pickering and Walcott, in their arguments, would bring up Hamilton's argument that the British were working to restore the Bourbon monarchy and that a delay until the French monarchy was restored would be to the benefit of the United States. To be fair to Hamilton, Pickering, and Walcott, the British had in fact been plotting with the Bourbon faction with an aim to use the would-be King Louis XVIII to defeat the French Republic and possibly restore the monarchy in France. However, non-Anglophile Federalists such as Adams and Lee had, in a sober assessment of the situation, seen that it was not very likely to happen anytime soon. On both sides of the debate, they realized that a delay would increase the likelihood of war with France, and that was a possibility that was unacceptable to Adams. Thus, the day after meeting with his cabinet, Adams ordered Ellsworth and his fellow commissioner, William R. Davey, to depart for France by November 1st. Hamilton would write to Washington a few days later, informing him of the decision and asserting that, quote, all my calculations lead me to regret the measure. I hope that it may not, in its consequences, involve the United States in a war on the side of France with her enemies. My trust in Providence, which has so often interposed in our favor, is my only consolation. As had been the case during his tenure in Washington's cabinet, Hamilton either couldn't or wouldn't see the middle ground. He felt that the U.S. had to be allied either with Britain or France, and that they couldn't be on friendly terms with both. He did, however, see the writing on the wall. With the peace mission ago, it wasn't likely that the new army was ever going to see battle or even be fully organized. Thus, one can only imagine his emotion when he stopped off at the winter quarters of the new army on his way back to New York from Trenton. As upset as Hamilton was over the situation, though, 
Pickering biographer Gerald Clearfield can only describe the Secretary of State at that point as, quote, rabid. Pickering wrote to Washington in a private and confidential letter on October 24th about the decision to proceed with the mission to France and asserted that, quote, This great question, I supposed, and my colleagues have formed the same expectation, would be a subject of consultation. But we have been disappointed. The president alone considered and decided. Pickering expressed his doubts that Adams had, quote, considered the matter in all its relations, as he claimed. But even if he had, Pickering felt that Adams' quote, conclusions are fatally erroneous. Reading the actual letter, one has to wonder whether Pickering was more upset over the actual decision to move forward with the peace mission, or the fact that he felt cut out of the decision-making process. Up until now, even when Adams had decided to take a different approach on matters, it does seem that Pickering felt at least consulted in some way, shape, or form. But he admitted to Washington that he had assumed the mission to France would be suspended from his previous correspondence with Adams. As I think we've all done from time to time, it's easy to understand how one can read something and read into it what one wants to read or misread from the original intent. To Adams' defense, though, he was clearly talking about the commissioner setting sail by late October or early November in his correspondence with Pickering prior to his arrival in Trenton. There was no talking to Pickering after Trenton, however. Again, from Clarefield, quote, From this point onward, Timothy Pickering proved constitutionally incapable of suppressing his anger with Adams. He wrote voluminous letters to almost all of his acquaintances, deriding the president. He spoke openly and vituperatively against Adams. He spoke so bluntly and publicly, in fact, that Adams soon became aware of his utterances. For a man who is often criticized for being temperamental and easily angered, the fact that Adams did not fire Pickering from his office in 1799 speaks to a level of self-discipline that I think few of us would possess in the same situation. In the midst of this distress, some of the standard practices of government carried on, and affairs settled back into a more familiar pattern. Congress was due back in session in December, and the president had to prepare his annual message. The government offices moved back to Philadelphia in late October, early November, when the yellow fever epidemic subsided. Most importantly of all for President Adams' well-being, however, was the restoration of his wife to his side. Abigail Adams was recovered enough in health that, a few days after John's departure, she followed him south towards the seat of government. For all the semblance of normality, though, the scent of change hung in the air this late autumn in Philadelphia. By the Residence Act of 1790, the deadline was set for December 1800 for the federal government to move to Washington, D.C. Thus, this would be the last winter season in Philadelphia for government officials, including those residing in the president's house. Abigail intended to use this opportunity to bring their family together and urge their son Thomas to live with them at the president's house that winter. Though Thomas had made Philadelphia his home since April, he had been living on his own in order to establish his own life and assert an independence from his family. However, with numerous factors pointing to this being the last opportunity for them to all be housed under the same roof, Abigail asked and Thomas agreed to move in with his parents that winter. The Adams' daughter, Nabby, and their granddaughter, Caroline, would also spend most of the winter in the president's house in Philadelphia. The Congress assembled on December 2nd, 1799, and the next day, Adams delivered his last annual message to Congress in that city. 
In this message, he addressed the actions that had been taken while the legislative branch was out of session, including sending the new commission to France, the proclamation to reopen trade to Saint-Domingue, and the steps taken to thwart Freeze's rebellion. Speaking of, 1799 was a rather impactful year for John Freeze as well, so perhaps we should get caught up with where he's at. When we last left him in episode 2.15, Freeze was being brought into custody. As stated in that episode, he was allowed a trial in federal court in Philadelphia, but as has been stated before, the modern concept of an impartial judiciary was not necessarily the standard practice of the time. Thus, Freeze faced Supreme Court Justice James Iredale and U.S. District Court Judge Richard Peters, both of whom were staunch Federalists. On May 9th, the jury found Freeze guilty of treason, and Iredale and Peters returned a sentence of death for Freeze on the 13th. However, one of Freeze's legal representatives in the trial, William Lewis, presented evidence on the 15th that one of the jurors, quote, declared a prejudice against the prisoner after he was summoned, and thus a mistrial was declared and a new trial scheduled for the summer. The new trial, however, would be delayed by the yellow fever epidemic, and thus, as 1799 progressed towards 1800, John Freeze's fate remained in limbo. Freeze was far from the only one finding himself in court for opposing the administration in 1799. The Sedition Act was being used not just against newspaper publishers and editors, but also everyday citizens who expressed discontent with the government. David Brown is described in Jeffrey R. Stone's Perilous Times, Free Speech and Wartime as being, quote, a vagabond radical who wandered from town to town preaching the evils of the Federalist government. Brown unfortunately ended up in Dedham, Massachusetts at one point and inspired local Democratic Republicans to erect a liberty pole. What made Dedham such an unfortunate place to end up was that it was the home of former Representative Fisher Ames. If that name sounds familiar, he was the one who delivered the fateful speech, which helped push the House to pass the appropriation bill to enact the Jay Treaty back in 1796, as discussed in episode 1.32. Though retired from public service, Ames was still a prominent leader in the Federalist Party and thus was quite upset about the erection of the Liberty Pole in his own hometown and urged quick action by the local government. After the pole was chopped down, Brown was arrested and tried in June 1799 with Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase presiding. Despite Brown entering a guilty plea, Chase still insisted upon carrying forward with hearing testimony from the witnesses for the prosecution and demanded that Brown provide him with a list of names of those who had supported his work against the government. When Brown refused, Chase sentenced him to 18 months in prison and a fine of $450, which, according to our friends at the Historical Currency Converter, is the equivalent of nearly $18,000 in 2015 U.S. dollars. This would ultimately be the most severe sentence imposed under the Sedition Act. But to contemporaries, especially those in the opposition, the question remained as to how much further the Federalists would go in imposing their will on the nation. Meanwhile, a change would be coming to the federal judiciary. After presiding over the Freeze trial, Justice Iredale began to suffer from ill health, but proceeded forward with a grueling schedule, including carrying forward with his circuit-riding responsibilities. As described in episode 2.11, this meant long trips on poor roads to end up in sometimes poor accommodations. And if the weather was foul, well, it was doubly difficult. 
Iredell was still fairly young, but his health was so bad that he was forced to cancel his plans to travel to Philadelphia for the August session of the Supreme Court and instead headed back home to Edenton, North Carolina, where he passed away on October 20th, just a couple of weeks after his 48th birthday. In order to retain the geographic balance of the court, Adams decided to nominate another North Carolinian to replace Iredell. Alfred Moore was a few years younger than Iredale and had already followed in his footsteps when he had succeeded Iredale as state attorney general. An avowed Federalist, Adams had already tapped Moore previously as part of a commission he had appointed in January 1798 to negotiate a treaty with the Cherokee Nation. However, Moore had left that position in order to take a seat on the North Carolina Superior Court. Thus, when Iredale's seat became available, After briefly considering William R. Davey, but deciding that it would be better to retain him on the commission to France, Adams decided on Moore for the seat and sent his nomination to the Senate on December 4th. Moore was confirmed on the 10th and would take his oath of office a few months later on April 21st at the Circuit Court of the District of Georgia in Savannah. Now, if you've never heard of Alfred Moore, don't worry. He is not known for being an influential member of the court. During his tenure, we only have one recorded opinion from him, and historian Richard E. Ellis wrote in Moore's entry in the Oxford Companion to the Supreme Court of the United States that, quote, Moore's career made scarcely a ripple in American judicial history. The one case that he wrote an opinion for would prove to be important enough to warrant some attention in a future episode. And I don't think I'm giving too much away by saying that Adams does have an important Supreme Court appointment awaiting him in the not-too-distant future. While Iredale was rather well-known in Federalist circles, another prominent death that year would overshadow that of the Supreme Court justice. On the night of December 17th, rumors began to flow into Philadelphia that the first president and the father of his country, General George Washington, had passed away a few days prior at Mount Vernon. However, it seems that there was little time to think of that tragedy that evening as another one threatened the city. According to a letter from First Lady Abigail Adams the next day, there was apparently a fire in the city that evening. I'll be honest, until I read this letter, I hadn't seen any mention of this fire in any of the books I've consulted on the Adams presidency, which are completely focused on the reactions to Washington's death in their coverage of December 1799. However, we do have a description from Abigail as she writes to her sister Mary Cranch, quote, It was the greatest fire I ever saw, or was so near. It did not do so much damage as many fires have, but a large circus of pine boards, canvas, and tar are combustible sufficient to have burnt down half the city. The wind carried it from us, or no one can tell where or when it would have stopped. It was as near to us as Mr. Baxter's is to you. Water was much wanted, every pump having been dried and exhausted before the fire could be got under. Congress Hall was in great danger. The weather was very cold. The houses, fortunately, had snow upon them. Even with this very recent near disaster, though, news of Washington's death was what Abigail began her letter with, and she wouldn't get around to telling her sister Mary about the fire until the end. Thus, considering that even contemporaries seem more focused on Washington than the fire, it's understandable why historians might not have focused on it either. The next afternoon, the city having survived the near inferno, official confirmation of Washington's death arrived, and John Marshall, now serving as a U.S. representative from Virginia, was asked by his colleagues to move for an adjournment for the rest of the day. Marshall, as noted in the Annals of Congress, quote, in a voice that bespoke the anguish of his mind and a countenance expressive of the deepest regret, shared the news of Washington's death with the House 
and move for an adjournment, asserting that, quote, the House of Representatives can be but ill-fitted for public business after receiving information of this national calamity. The next couple of weeks would be full of official morning duties for President Adams as announcements and remarks had to go to the House and the Senate, the Army, Martha Washington, so on and so forth. We'll get to some of those in a moment, but I'd like to turn back for a second to Abigail's letter to her sister, as I think that may reflect how much of a shock the news came to everyone, including the president. Abigail wrote as follows, quote, Death, thou art no respecter of persons. Washington is no more. A great man has fallen, and his end is peace. I shall die, said he, but death has no terrors for me. This melancholy event was this day brought to the city by the mail and by private letters. The croup was the rapid disease which put a period to the days of him whose memory will I trust be embalmed in the hearts of all true Americans. Every countenance is covered with gloom. What a fair, what a virtuous creature will survive him. I had almost said how enviable that call of his master, which has not permitted him to exhibit to the world, a state of imbecility and bodily decay, which frequently effaces from the memory and recollection the more shining and brilliant actions of early life by reducing the body and weakening the faculties of the mind. In a better world, I trust, he will receive the reward of a good and faithful servant. The stroke is so sudden and so unexpected that we have scarcely collected our thoughts. The heads of department are now in consultation with the president upon what measures are proper to be taken upon the occasion as it respects going into mourning. Mourning would certainly be the order of the day after the news was processed. As described by David McCullough, quote, The door of the presidential mansion, Congress Hall, Washington's pew at Christchurch were draped in black. The morning would not be confined to Philadelphia, as up and down the eastern seaboard, everything from ships to pulpits were draped in black. The official day of mourning in Philadelphia was held the day after Christmas, and federal and state officials, including President and First Lady Adams, participated in a procession that began at Congress Hall and led through the streets of the city to the German Lutheran Church at Fourth and Cherry, the church with the largest seating capacity in Philadelphia. There, a service was held with an oration provided by Light Horse Harry Lee that has become famous for his line in which he proclaimed Washington to be, quote, first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen. After the four and a half hour long service, events moved on to the president's house where several hundreds of individuals, all dressed in mourning black, gathered. In an official address in response to one delivered by members of the Senate, Adams stated that, quote, Although, with a constitution more enfeebled than his, at an age when he thought it necessary to prepare for retirement, I feel myself alone, bereaved of my last brother. Yet I derive a strong consolation from the unanimous disposition which appears in all ages and classes to mingle their sorrows with mine on this common calamity to the world. His example is now complete, and it will teach wisdom and virtue to magistrates, citizens, and men, not only in the present age, but in future generations, as long as our history shall be read. 219 years on, as of this recording, Adams's prediction still seems to be holding true. As we've seen thus far in this podcast, Washington had already been revered as a near demigod while alive. Once the initial shock wore off, one has to wonder when Adams began to think of how his predecessor's death would elevate his status further and what it would mean for Adams and his presidency. 
Adams had already been hard-pressed to escape from under Washington's shadow. How much more complicated would that process be now that folks were referring to the general as, quote, the savior of his country? Though many others were likely considering what Washington's death meant for the future, I feel it important before we close out this episode to consider two others in particular. First, someone who was very close to Washington, General Alexander Hamilton. As Hamilton biographer Ron Chernow wrote, quote, For 22 years, their careers, Washington's and Hamilton's, had been yoked together, and Hamilton had never needed Washington's sponsorship more urgently than now. Hamilton had for some time not been in Adams's good graces, and it was only at Washington's insistence that he had his current position in the Army. With Washington gone, who knew what the future meant for Hamilton? As Hamilton wrote to fellow General Charles Coatsworth Pinckney on December 22nd, quote, Perhaps no friend of his, i.e. Washington's, has more cause to lament on personal account than myself. The public misfortune is one which all the friends of our government will view in the same light. I will not dwell on the subject. My imagination is gloomy, my heart sad. The second reaction worth considering is that of Vice President Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson had been gone from the nation's capital even longer than Adams, having departed on March 1st and not returning until late December. While this seems odd to us in the modern era, 2019 as of this recording, it should be remembered that the vice president was seen at the time as more of a member of the legislative branch than of the executive branch due to his role as president of the Senate. Thus, Jefferson would have operated more on the schedule of Congress, which had ended its session in March and didn't return until December. Thanks to the schedule, Jefferson had a good amount of time to reflect for Monticello on the political situation. Despite the dangers posed by the Alien and Sedition Acts, Jefferson continued to coordinate an opposition with former Representative James Madison through the course of 1799. Since there had been little action in other states since the initial Virginia and Kentucky resolutions the year prior, Jefferson began working on outlining another resolution. He wrote of his thoughts to Wilson Carey Nicholas on September 5th, though asserting that, quote, as to the preparing anything, I must decline it to avoid suspicions, which are pretty strong in some quarters on the last occasion, and because there remains still, after their late loss, a mass of talents in Kentucky sufficient for every purpose. The only object of the present communications is to procure a concert in the general plan of action. He was trying to position himself to deny any direct involvement though at the same time doing everything he could to shove Democratic-Republicans in Kentucky in the right direction. Miraculously, Jefferson wrote to Nicholas just as he was preparing to go to Kentucky, and in November, the Kentucky legislature passed a second series of resolutions. Never saw that one coming, did you? While mostly a more conciliatory reiteration of the earlier resolutions, the 1799 resolutions are notable for containing the word nullification and introducing it into the political lexicon. While the resolutions had been discussed in newspapers across the nation after their passage, they soon were overshadowed by the news of Washington's death. Whereas Hamilton had been present in the Capitol for the memorial ceremonies for Washington on the 26th, Jefferson was not, only arriving back in Philadelphia on the 28th. Jefferson biographer Dumas Malone explains his absence from the ceremonies as follows, quote, If the news of the passing of the nation's hero reached Monticello soon enough, as it probably did, presumably the vice president could have started from home two or three days earlier. 
But in view of all that had been said in recent years about his, i.e. Jefferson's, relations with his old chief, the succeedingly sensitive man may have concluded that he would find these ceremonies embarrassing. If he had been there, some Federalist spokesman would almost certainly have described him as a hypocrite, and no doubt he was glad of a good excuse to be away. However, even upon his late arrival, Jefferson would be subject to the symbols of national mourning. Again from Malone, quote, As presiding officer of the Senate, he sat in a chair which was draped for a month in black. What did Jefferson feel about Washington's death? Well, his correspondence immediately after gives us no clues, though there is a memorandum that scholars attribute to having been written after December 29th in which Jefferson offers up a defense for his long absence from the nation's capital by citing the precedent of Adams during his tenure as vice president. Though Jefferson would later jump on the Washington bandwagon and express his adoration and respect for Washington, at the time, he just sat in his black draped chair and remained silent on the matter. One can only imagine that Jefferson, like Adams and Hamilton, considered what Washington's death would mean not only for his personal future, but for the future of his cause and the nation as a whole. We'll start exploring the post-Washington world next time in an episode I'd like to call New Year, New Avou. That's New Year, New to You en Francais, where we'll catch up with our special envoys in a France that is rather different than the one that they had expected. Thanks so much again to James Early for providing the intro quote for this episode. And please be sure to check out Key Battles of the Civil War and Presidential Fight Club. Links to both can be found in the source notes for this episode at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. As for me, please feel free to reach out to me through email at presidencies all one word, at gmail.com. Or connect through social media, where I can be found on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, on Twitter at presidencies89, or on Instagram at presidencies podcast. Again, all one word. Thanks so much to all of you for listening. As we approach the final chapters of the Adams presidency, it is a reflective time for me, but I'm also thinking of what's in store both for our narrative and for this podcast. I've got some ideas in mind that I'll be sharing through social media, so I hope you'll connect and stay tuned. Thanks again. And until next time, take care, dear friends. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.